Love sum orders are a very important part of the child support jurisdiction. They allow a payer to pay out once and for all his child support obligation. Lump sums are beloved by payers because they receive a capital sum up front that they can go and pay off a mortgage or use in some other way beneficial to them. But they come with risks. Once a lump sum has been paid, it's been paid and it can't readily be unpaid. So if the child were to die or the child changes custody, or any of the other problems which might conceivably arise, difficulties exist that can't readily be remedied. So they have benefits, but there are also drawbacks. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 391 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Today, let's talk about child support lump sum payments. What if the father or the mother, whoever is paying the child support, but let's assume it's the father. What if the father just had enough and just wants to get out of this constant conflict with the mother about money? Just pay once, pay a lump sum and then you are done. So... The question to Simon Bacon of Manby and Scott in Melbourne is, can you put an end to all this child support drama by paying a lump sum? When does this make sense? We will also briefly go back to a child maintenance trust and discuss whether and how a CMT changes the P's entitlement to family tax benefit A and B. We raised this question at the end of one of the previous four episodes. So in this episode, Simon Bacon will give you an answer and that answer is different to what I thought or previously suggested. So here's Simon Bacon of Manby in Scott in Melbourne about the lump sum payment of child support. Lump sums can either be just an agreement between the parents without involvement from a court or they can be set by a court and a court I assume would only require a lump sum if the father has a very bad payment history and the court is basically fed up with this ongoing administrative burden and they just want to be done and dusted with it and hence they just say, okay, you pay 50000 and then we are done with you, correct? Correct, yes. Courts don't like to order child support be paid in that way because firstly, the payer has to find a capital sum, often not easy. Secondly, things change. So in your example, the payer may pay $50,000 and then the next day the child falls out with the mother and the child comes and lives with the father. We can't foresee the future. And so courts are reluctant to make these lump sum orders. But if there's been a particularly recalcitrant payer, the court will order it. Often the court will just order, say, a year's child support to be paid up front to give the payer a taste of what it might do if the payer doesn't start behaving, but still so much money hasn't been paid that if some unforeseen circumstance happens, people aren't too prejudiced. And so I can imagine most of the lump sum agreements will happen through an agreement without the court's involvement, but would you then go back to the court to make the substitution order more legally binding? Yes, a prudent uh, set of parents would agree on whatever it is they agree, lump sum order, whatever, and then they would approach the court and ask the court to make an order by consent under 
what is called Part 7, Division 5 of the Child Support Assessment Act, this part of the Act that deals with non-periodic child support. So the parties agree, they put their proposal to the judge who signs off on it, and then it's court order, and as much as it can be a family law, signed, sealed, and delivered. And have you seen it that parents agree on a lump sum, but only up to a certain age? So, for, for example, until the child is 15, and then when the child is 15, we see again where the child lives, because then the risk is really only about three years. Yes, yes, that's one of the mechanisms that people use to inc to overcome this uncertainty aspect. They limit it temporally. They limit it to a particular period of time. Right. And it's very useful, but then, of course, when the child turns 15, the parents are back in court bickering with each other. It's hard to know what is the preferred outcome. When parents agree on a lump sum agreement, they can go through the court. Prudent parents would go through the court. If the father then doesn't pay the full amount or doesn't pay any of this lump sum, then the mother would have to go back to court, which is costly, correct? Well, a good lawyer acting for the mother would uh, put in a self-executing aspect to those orders saying, if the father doesn't fully comply with his obligations here, these orders are null and void. So there wouldn't need to be a need to go back to court. But this is one of the issues with non-periodic child support. It's not able to be registered for collection with the child support agency and the parties are let to themselves to do this stuff. One of the guiding principles of child support law is that the child support agency, which is actually Department of Human Services, was set up so as to free payees of the obligation to collect or administratively look after these child support uh, situations. There was a government department set up to collect any money payable And the hope was that that was going to ensure that payees got paid and therefore the Commonwealth government, government wasn't required to pay out what used to be called single mother's pension. Uh, and when you move into lump sums and substitution orders, of course, the enforcement requirement shifts back to the payee and often the payees don't have the energy or the money or the time and problems can occur. If the uh, father doesn't pay the lump sum and then hence the uh, lawyer for the mother declares the agreement void, would the obligation then automatically turn back to a child support assessment? Would it automatically then go back to the child support agency? Yes. So in that form of words I use, that the, these orders are null and void if the father doesn't pay, the pre-existing situation would come back, which is probably an administrative assessment uh, periodic child support collected by the agency. But one would have to think that if the parties have agreed and then they went to the judge and the judge made the order, one would have to think that uh, they would comply with that. When you think of the cases you work on, how often do you work on a lump sum? Is it 10%, 5%, 1%? Well, they're not very common. As I say, payees love them because payees get a capital sum that they can do things with. Payers are all very reluctant to pay money up front now, borrow the money off and pay the interest on the money, cross the fingers that nothing happens with the child. Payers don't like them. Now, you can factor those considerations in, the vicissitudes of life, and you can discount the lump sum payment to reflect these things. But then the mother starts to say, well, what's in this for me? Because this large payment I was going to get now has been discounted. 
you know, by net present value and then all these other vicissitudes of life. So the upside of it is that I don't see many of When you do see one, how is the lump sum actually calculated? Do you just take the age of the child times 12, you know, the remaining age of the child up to the 18th birthday times 12 to get the number of months and then times monthly child support payments and then you discount it to get to net present value? Is that roughly how you would calculate a lump sum? Well, the parties can calculate it any way they like. But yes, if I was acting for one of these parties, I'd start with how much is the payer pay now? Try and anticipate what might happen in the future. The child's obviously going to come older and therefore the child support assessment will go up. The payer probably will get pay rises, so the assessment will go up. Try and come to some vague notion of what an average payment would be times that by how many years involved. And then you would have to discount that because money now is worth more than money in the future. So there'd be a net present value reduction to reflect that. And then you're going to have to reduce it further because of these vicissitudes of life. Mum likely tats what the child might die, the child might come with the dad, so I'd probably knock an extra 10% off of that. And that's, you know, the rough ballpark way of calculating these things. You already touched on this last week, I think, and that was that you said when we spoke about Elon Musk and you said that a court can basically reopen anything, but they are unlikely to reopen it unless there's fraud or there is some harsh case of hardship or similar, correct? Correct. Courts like to create certainty and they're going to be very reluctant to upset one of these things. Clearly, they will upset it if there's been fraud. If Elon Musk, in your example, in fact, wasn't bankrupt when he didn't steal, he just made it look like he was bankrupt. Or if there was undue influence, gun was held at the woman's head when she signed the papers or Something, something demonstrable like that clearly is going to want the court to invoke its jurisdiction. But apart from that, there really has to be an egregious... The Act talks about exceptional circumstances having arisen since the order was made that causes the previous order to be unjust and inequitable. Good. So that means the lump sum, if they do agree on a lump sum, I understand it doesn't happen often, but if the parents do agree on a lump sum then it means it creates certainty for both parties. It means the father can be certain that the mother won't find it easy to come back a few years later and demand more money. And the mother has relative certainty that the father won't come back in a few years and demand part of his money back. Correct, yes, yes. Tricky question, just out of curiosity. When you pay a lump sum, you lose a little bit of leverage regarding contact hours with the child. Have you seen that quite often that once the father has paid everything that there's a lot less cooperation with respect to contact hours. Have you seen that? Well, firstly, it's important to note that child support and child contact are two completely different things. It's reprehensible if the parties start to bargain away these things. If you don't pay your child support, you're not going to see the child, that kind of thing. It's reprehensible and it shouldn't happen. But in fact, I see the opposite to what you're talking about. I see once the stress and the trauma and the anxiety and uncertainty of child support is lifted off everyone's shoulders, once dad has paid this money and it's all finished, then often the situation with access will improve. Because remember, most fathers get a discount if they see their child. And so it costs the mother to let the father see the child in terms of child support anyway. That cost no longer exists because mum's got this big payment 
In fact, for mum, it's good because she's got a free babysitter. And I often see situations improving, not not getting worse. But yes, in theory, if you've got a particularly difficult set of parents, once one parent has been paid out, you can anticipate that custodial parent then enjoying a bit of fun with the other parent by uh, stopping that other parent and contact the child. Reprehensible and improper, but yes, I'm sure it does happen. I see. But I think what you said before, that sounds very plausible, that once all this bickering over money and suspicion that the father does some funny business with his tax return and the father being anxious about what the mother is spending the money on, although that probably still exists. But I can imagine that once this bickering over money is removed, that the relationship between the parents actually could improve and become a lot more amicable. Yes, well, that is my experience. As I say, it costs the mother money to let the father see the child normally because of the way the child's formula works. That cost no longer exists. So for that reason alone, it's beneficial for the mother to encourage the father to have contact. But uh, we're dealing with human beings here and there are very strange, more sorts of people are motivated by all sorts of different reasons. Can I ask you something about tax eventually? And that is, I assume that... I mean, all child support payments are tax-free per section or tax-exempt, I should say, per section 5150 of ITAA 97. I assume that also applies to lump sums, correct? Correct. Now, I am not a tax lawyer. I can't give people tax advice, but definitely I have never seen one of these things taxed. It's normal child support. It's just it's capitalized child support. There's no difference between this any other child support. And I, I know as a matter of fact, from my own experience, that child support is not taxed, but I'm not a tax tax lawyer. Now, my next question will be about family tax benefit A and B and quite a few more questions. But before we do that, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20 percent. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups because this year I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. And then I have another question, and it's with respect to family tax benefit A and B. And no lawyer likes to talk about family tax benefit A and B because it's tedious and it's about relatively small amounts of money. But is it correct that when you make a lump sum, you basically have an agreement and to qualify for family tax benefit A and B, you need to be on an assessment. Hence, with a lump sum, you move to an agreement. Hence, you lose all access to family tax benefit A and B. In theory, lawyers might be able to do something, but in theory, is that the problem? Why family tax benefit A and B might be adversely affected when you agree on a lump sum? Uh, it doesn't seem to be, but firstly, we have to understand that this is why we have a child support system. Back in the old days, when I started as a lawyer, what would typically happen at separation is mum and dad would separate and the mother would be left with the children, and the children would be looked after by the Commonwealth taxpayer. It used to be called single mother's pension. In 1989, Parliament decided, we're not having this anymore. We're going to make men pay child support, and whatever child support they uh, pay 
it's going to reduce the amount of single mother's pension paid out to that particular mother. Now, the lump sums don't really change that uh, situation because when a lump sum is paid, the child support agency is advised of it and the child support agency amortizes that payment every year. Notional assessments get generated and it's assumed that the mother is still receiving the same amount of child support that she would have been receiving had she not entered the lump sum. So the pension, FDA and B, it's now called, gets reduced accordingly. I see. Okay, good. So for example, let's say just very roughly if the mother was receiving $50,000 lump sum and the child was 13, hence had still five years to go on uh, child support, then the uh, child support agency would say, okay, roughly you are getting $10,000 a year and that's what we take into your calculation of whether you get a family tax benefit or not. Well, it's actually a little more complicated than that. What the agency does, regardless of any lump sum that's occurred, is the they issue every year what's called a notional assessment. They know there isn't an assessment anymore needed because the parties have reached a lump sum payment, but they pretend that didn't occur And they issue an assessment on what the child support would be had this lump sum not been paid. And the mother's FDA and B is reduced on that basis. I see. Okay, good. So if the mother received $10,000 so far a year, and now she actually receives a very, very generous payout, then that doesn't matter. It's The mother is still assessed on $10,000 a year. Yes, assessments would issue on the same basis as they always have done based on mom's taxable income and dad's taxable income, the ages of children, how often that's the kids. These, the, the assessment gets generated, that gets sent to Centrelink, and Centrelink, when it's determining the mother's FTA and B, will just assume that the mother's receiving that. But in reality, of course, she's received all her child support in one go, and she's paid off a mortgage. But the Commonwealth taxpayer is not going to be slumped more money just because the parents have agreed to receive it as a lump sum. The lump sum is kind of irrelevant for FDA and B purposes. Sorry, I have a criminal mind. So just in theory, if the parents were cooperating with each other, in theory, they could, for example, have a very low wage for the father, hence a relatively high family Tax benefit A and B, yes. Yes. And then the parents make an agreement with a very generous lump sum, but the mother is still assessed on this very low child support due to the father's low wage, and hence she would still receive a relatively high family tax benefit. I like the criminal mind idea. It's, it's, it works very, very, very well, yes. But there are pro problems with that. I mean, the father can't just determine a very low income, he has to file tax returns and he has to convince the tax man that that is in fact his income. The agency, if it gets suspicious, can do what's called a RICA, which is an acronym, Registrar Initiated Change of Assessment. It can look beyond that, but in theory, what you say is right. If the parties colluded, kept their heads down in the trenches and it all went through for a year or two, then they could carry out that machination. Yeah. For a lump sum, how easy is it to transfer super? So, for example, if the parents agree on a lump sum of $100,000 and then the dad throws another $50,000 super in, how easy is it to transfer this super? Is it, I assume it's relatively easy and it's tax-exempt, correct? Yes, I believe the transfer of uh, superannuation is, but it's not really got anything to do with uh, 
child support that the, the the father would have to convince his fund to transfer the superannuation. Now you can do that for the court order, family or property settlement. Actually, a property settlement question, isn't it? It's not child support question. Regularly in a property settlement, um, superannuation is transferred, yes. Okay, good. So let's say the parents have done a property settlement and some of the super was transferred, but now the parents want to do a lump sum and because dad doesn't have much money left, he agrees to transfer more super to the wife. Does that work when it's after a property settlement, but for a lump sum child support payment? That's not a particularly attractive proposition to the wife because uh, she would have to wait until often she's turned 60 to get those funds, whereas the idea with a lump sum is to get a lump sum now. But yes, if the father has absolutely nothing else and perhaps the mother is close to retirement, it might be a bit more of an attractive proposition. So you would make a substitution order before the court, ordering the father transfer the super, the court would make a super transfer order as part of that, and the fund would just transfer the money across to the mother. It might be of interest when the mother is relatively well off, because, for example, she has a new partner who is well off, and she is intent of taking the last cent out of the dad's coffins. Yes, so then it could work. Yes, yes, it could, it could. But if the parties were that daggers drawn, then the father would oppose the making of a lump sum order, I imagine. And if it's the last money that the father has, then the child support probably would be reasonably low anyway, so the father wouldn't have to transfer the super. Yes, and the father would say, well, my entitlement to superannuation when I'm 60 is not a financial resource in my hands now, and it shouldn't be taken into account by the court. How often have you seen it that a father just, is so fed up of this whole child support topic. He just wants out. And so he has money, but he just basically throws his super in as well, just to make it as attractive as possible so that the mother agrees and will take it. Well, uh, I don't actually see many lump sum cases then, but you can definitely imagine a man has put the best offer he can on the table. He's got nothing else to give, but he's so sick of it that he says, well, I transfer across what I do have left, which is my super. It's all very achievable, but not particularly useful to pay. People who receive child support tend to be younger, which means there's a long age gap before they can access their superannuation. And just, I wouldn't have thought that's a very attractive proposition. Can I ask you one last question off topic, which is actually not about lump sums. It's about child maintenance trusts. When the child support is paid through a child maintenance trust, it's accessible to the children. I mean, directly to the trustee, but in the end, it goes to the children. Hence, it has nothing to do with the mother. Does that mean the mother's entitlement to family tax benefit A and B is not affected since she basically doesn't receive any child support or does something happen similar to the lump sum that there is a notional assessment? It probably wouldn't affect the family tax AMB because that is determined on the basis of what she would have got had there been no deal. There would be these notional assessments generated every year that will tell the child support agency who will tell Centrelink what she would have got had she not involved herself in this complicated set of processes and her FTA and B would be uh, determined on that basis. So that means the f mother can't continue receiving the full family tax benefit A and B when there are very generous payments coming to the children through a child maintenance trust, correct? Um, or let me ask this differently. 
there are two things that confuse me. The first one is that a receiving child support through a child maintenance trust is not a child support assessment, but is basically an agreement. And I understand to receive family tax benefit A and B, you need to have an assessment. Since you don't have an assessment, but you have an agreement around this child maintenance trust, you don't qualify for family tax benefit A and B anyway. Is that correct? Or is correct what I said previously that you can actually protect family tax benefit A and B by going through a child maintenance trust? Look, I don't have many of these cases. In fact, I don't think I've, I've ever had one. But what happens is mum goes to Centrelink and applies family tax benefit A and B. And Centrelink say, right, before we can determine this, you need to go and register our child support agency. And if mum goes and registers a child support agency, then these notional these assessments get generated and Centrelink will be based on that. If she decides to give up something from the notional assessment, Centrelink don't care. You are entitled, strictly speaking, to this and we assess your family tax benefit A and B on that basis. If the mother engages some complex process of family maintenance trust and everything else, Centrelink is blind to it. Centrelink know what she would have got if she hadn't engaged in that process and they'll determine the family tax benefit based on that. Okay, good. So what I said before then is complete rubbish because it basically means your family tax benefit A and B just has a notional assessment. It's not as if the mother then suddenly stands completely child supportless in the room. That's right. It's, um, it's an assessment on what would have happened had it's been a rumor case of assessing these people on their taxable incomes. Our joint client is a complete exception then, isn't it? Because he has spoken with you about a lump sum payment, correct? So that means he's a real exception then. Well, what we have to do in his case is we have to bring what's called a departure order before a court to reduce the amount of child support that he's paying. Okay, now, the exception to these Centrelink rules that I've just discussed is if a court makes an order. The parties can't agree to reduce the child. The mother can't agree to reduce the child's support. But if a court orders the child's support gets reduced, that's different. Centrelink will say, well, court's made it and we're not going to interfere with the court. We are going to take the assessment on what the court has determined. What's the difference between a substitution order and a departure order? Well, a substitution order is about substituting a payment to a third party, a doctor or a dentist with school excursion, in place of payment of child support to the mother. A departure order is an order departing from the child support formula, increasing or decreasing the actual quantum to be paid in total so a departure order determines the quantum of child support to be paid. A substitution order determines how it is to be paid, whether it's 100% to the mother or 80% to mother and 20% to the doctor. It's arguing how it's distributed. It does, it's not about the quantum involved. So that means when we do a lump sum, then you start with a departure order and then 
do you still do a substitution order when it's basically just a lump sum of payment to the mother? So don't worry about medical bills. Don't worry about school fees. It's just all going to the mother. So if we have a departure order for a lump sum payment, would we also have a substitution order or just a departure order? Well, that depends on the interactions with Centrelink. If Centrelink are involved, people want to engage in complicated processes to maximize their Centrelink payments. But strictly speaking, a lump sum payment is just capitalizing a given amount of child support, discounting it by net present value and paying that. Okay. So a lump sum would usually just be a departure order, correct? No, a departure order is about changing the amount of child support to be paid on a, on, on a periodic basis. A lump sum is trying to capitalize whatever that figure is into a one given payment to cover various years. So you're saying a lump sum is not a departure order, it would be a substitution order? Is that what you're saying? A lump sum is a species of substitution order under Part 7, Division 5 of the Child Support Assessment Act, whereas a departure order changing the amount to actually be paid is under Part 7, Division 4 of the Act. Okay, good. Off the record, I have to be a bit cagey with this stuff because this is my stock in trade. If I tell you the secrets, I have to be careful. Yeah, 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 no, I appreciate it. I understand. Yeah. But uh, it, what you have said so far makes sense even without the secrets, correct? Yes. Yes, there's nothing I, I've said that's not right. But at the end, we are at the interface between me starting to tell your listeners how to manipulate the Centrelink system. So you know, when we spoke about your magic wand and you didn't want to mention trade secrets, that has to do with this fine line between departure order and substitution order. Is that it? Yes, it's about getting a balance right. Lump sum orders are a very important part of the child support jurisdiction. They allow a payer to pay out once and for all his child support obligation and he's freed of the obligation uh, in the future. He can get on and carry out any business activities he or she wants to without ever having any child support considerations. Lump sums are beloved by payees because they receive a capital sum up front that they can go and pay off a mortgage or use in some other way beneficial to them, but they come with risks. Once a lump sum has been paid, it's been paid and it can't readily be unpaid. So if the child were to die or the child changes custody or any of the other problems which might conceivably arise, difficulties exist that can't readily be remedied. So they have benefits, but there are also drawbacks. So this was the last episode in our six-part mini-series about child support. What's going to come next? We are going to talk about the legislative framework for electronic signatures. When can you and can't you sign electronically? That's what we will cover next week with Jennifer Lachlan and Marcus Henner of DocuSign. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.